test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them um, take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, after, uh, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things be known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Sam. Well, how wonderful is it that Brooks' baptism occurs in conjunction with this passage because it's connected very closely. We're going to be continuing in our sermon series in the book of Acts today and next Sunday, and then we're taking a break in the summer as we're going to be looking at the par- many of the parables of Jesus in the book of Luke. Um, that will start on the first Sunday of June. The wonderful message of the gospel, which the apostles preached from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, to the Mediterranean world, was that of the gracious salvation provided in Jesus Christ, which we just saw through the sacrament of baptism. This is the message that Paul proclaimed on his missionary journey everywhere he went, and we have a great example of that that we heard a couple of weeks ago in Acts 13, where in that sermon, Paul says, through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Since Acts 10, when Peter preached in Cornelius' household, more and more Gentiles were joining God's people, especially as Paul, Barnabas, and other missionaries took the gospel to the wider world. Gentiles were all the people who were not Jewish. Egyptians, Romans, Spaniards, Germans, everybody, all of us most likely are Gentiles. In Acts 14, 27, we read how Paul and Barnabas gathered the church in Antioch together after their first missionary journey, and they declared to them all that God had done and how he had opened a door of faith for the Gentiles, and the church rejoiced. However, this did not please everyone. In Acts 15, 1, which we just read, some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised, According to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Within the early Christian community, there was a disagreement over whether those who became Christians from a non-Jewish background needed to be circumcised, needed to follow every jot and tittle, every detail of the Mosaic law. These brothers came from Judea to Antioch and said that you cannot really be saved unless you believe in Jesus and practice the law epitomized in circumcision. 
However, as the early Christians gathered together in Jerusalem for a special council of elders and teachers, they utterly rejected the notion of any sort of salvation of Jesus plus, Jesus plus good works, Jesus plus Jewish tradition, Jesus plus anything. They rejected it. Let's pray, and then we'll dive into our sermon. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've given it to us, that you've spoken it to us, so that we might be encouraged and strengthened in our walk with you. Speak to us now, Holy Spirit, we pray. Use this time in Jesus' name, amen. John Bunyan has a wonderful book called Pilgrim's Progress. It's an allegory of the Christian life. The main character, Christian, journeys to the celestial city where he's gonna finally get salvation. He begins the journey with a great burden on his back, a burden that just feels so heavy and is weighing him down. This burden is sin, and it's weighing him down to hell, is what the book says. He needs relief and salvation from that burden. He's longing for it. He's searching for it. And on his journey, he meets a man named Evangelist. And Evangelist tells him that you have to go to this gate, where at the gate you will hear of how to have salvation from your burden. And so uh, Christian sets off on that journey to the gate. And on the way, he meets another man called Worldly Wise Man. And this man tells him, no, evangelist is wrong. You don't need to go to that gate. You need to go to Mount Sinai and go and find the law. And only in the law will you get relief from this burden that's on your back. So Christian sets off to Mount Sinai instead. But evangelist comes and finds him on the way. And he says to Christian, no, don't listen to worldly wise men. He's completely wrong. He says the law, instead of cleansing the heart from sin, revives it, puts strength into sin, and increases it in the soul, for the law does not give power to subdue. The law does not give power to subdue. Humanity outside of Christ is confronted with two great burdens that are unbearable, that we can't bear up under. The burden or yoke of sin and the burden or yoke of the law. So our big idea today that we're going to be exploring through our passage is that God has saved us by grace through Jesus, so we should live free from the yokes of both sin and the law. Let's say that again. God has saved us by grace through Jesus, so we should live free from both the yokes of sin and the law. And we're going to explore that through three main points. The yoke of sin, the yoke of the law, and living free. First, the yoke of sin. The reality of humanity's struggle with sin is clear across the pages of Scripture. It was central to the message of the apostles and early Christians. In verses 7 to 9, during this Jerusalem council, Peter stands up and he reminds the gathered assembly of how God first brought the gospel to the Gentiles and had given them the Holy Spirit. He reminds them of how they were in, he was in Cornelius' household in Acts 10, preaching the gospel. And in Acts 10, if we went back and looked, we would see Peter saying these words, to Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him will receive forgiveness of sins. Everyone who believes in him, who believes in Jesus, will receive forgiveness of sins. And Peter concludes his short speech to the Jerusalem council with the reminder that both Jews and Gentiles alike are saved by grace. He says there's no difference between us. We both need to be cleansed by the Holy Spirit. In verse 11, he says, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. There's no difference between us, he says. After Peter speaks, the whole council listens to Barnabas and Paul as they recount the signs and wonders that God did amongst the Gentiles. Signs and wonders are done throughout Acts to affirm what God is doing. It's God's stamp of approval saying, this is good and right. 
James then stands up and he speaks and explains how, in fact, the whole Old Testament prophets agree that the Gentiles would be included in the people of God. In verses 16 to 17, he reads mostly from the book of Amos, but including other ideas from the prophets, and explains that God had promised to restore Israel to its mission of being a witness to the Gentile world and including them in God's people. This was Israel's mission from the very beginning, to make it possible for all humanity to seek the Lord. That's what God promised to do through Abraham and all of his descendants. He said, in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. This was God's plan all along. But all of humanity was under a yoke of sin. Paul explains this in Romans 3.23, how he says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In Romans 2, and leading up to that verse, he says, there's no one righteous, not one, nobody can stand before God. He further explains in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. What we have earned for our sin is death, physical and spiritual separation from God. In fact, he explains in Romans 5 and 6 that all humanity, apart from salvation in Jesus Christ, are in effect slaves to sin. It is as if we were born under this heavy yoke of sin that we can't get out from under. Sin could be understood as missing the mark, falling short, not fulfilling the right good requirements that God has for each one of us. But in Jesus Christ, we are freed from sin and death. In Jesus Christ, that yoke of sin has been removed because Romans 6.23 goes on and says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have been freed Peter, writing in his epistle, in his first epistle, says Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. God has saved us by grace through Jesus, so we should live free from the yoke of sin. If you are in Jesus Christ, then you are no longer under that yoke. And we can say no to sin, reject it, and reject that which is displeasing to God, and turn instead to following him. Rinald III was Duke of Gilders in the 14th century. Uh, I love to read history, and in reading history, I once came across a story. I tried to find out if it is actually true. It's in this historical book. It might be true and might not. Upon Rinald's death, his father's death, Rinald became Duke in his father's place. He had a younger brother, Edward, who was incredibly warlike and wanted to be duke. And so Edward went to war with his brother, and Edward defeated him completely and captured him. Edward, sorry, I lost my place. Edward put his brother in a prison cell. He built a special prison cell for his brother in his castle, and it was very unique in that the doors and the windows were never locked. They were always open and unlocked, but his brother would not leave because you see, Renald was extremely overweight and loved all types of food. He loved to eat, and he could not seem to lose weight. And so his brother Edward would actually say, I, I haven't captured my brother. He's free to leave any time. He can just walk out. But the doors and the windows were made too small for Renald to leave. Edward would send the best foods to his brother every day from his own personal chef, the foods that Renald liked, and Renald would eat them. He was too in love with food to resist this temptation. He was a prisoner of his desires and his appetites. He stayed in that prison for 10 years until his brother finally died. Like Renald, before Christ, we were prisoners of our appetites. Become so, we have become so accustomed to sin that it's what we long for and desire. 
even though it is completely bad for us? In what ways are you still living as if you were a slave to sin? The door has been opened. You can walk out at any time. In Jesus Christ, you have been freed from sin, and it is no longer something that should satisfy you. I encourage you, examine your heart, examine your own life. In what ways are you still sinning against the Lord? In what ways have you not yet confessed and repented and turned away? Ask other people. Don't just do it on your own. Ask those who are closest to you. Ask them, in what ways do I, am I still blind to my own sin and struggles? And give them permission to speak into it. And then confess and repent and believe the reality, the truth of the gospel. If you have believed in Jesus as your Savior, then you are united with Jesus and you are saved You are freed from that yoke of sin. It is no longer who you are. You are no longer a slave, but you are a beloved daughter and son of God the Father. You are justified, made holy and right in God's sight, completely, unequivocally. The wages of your sin has been removed, and you have eternal life. And you can now live as if that is true, because it is. However, there is a distinction between justification and sanctification. Justification is a single event that happens at the moment of faith. When you believe in Jesus, you are made right and holy in God's eyes. Sanctification is a process. It's what happens over the whole course of your life. It's progressive. Anthony Hokema explains progressive sanctification as the work of the Spirit, whereby he continually renews and transforms us into the likeness of Christ enabling us to keep on growing in grace and to keep on perfecting our holiness. It takes time. It takes our entire lives to grow to be like Jesus Christ, and we won't completely see it until we also die and are raised to new life. So don't grow weary. Don't lose heart. Both justification and sanctification are God's gracious gift. They're given to us freely Sanctification could also be understood as dependent responsibility, whereby we rely on the Holy Spirit and actively say no to sin and yes to a life that's pleasing to God. So we see that we're freed from the yoke of sin. It is no longer a burden that's on our back. Peter in his speech goes further and says that Gentile and Jew alike are saved from sin, but they are also saved from the yoke of the law. What is he talking about here? What does that mean? In Acts 15, 10, he says in his speech, now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Peter declares that the Jewish people, all of those listening included, were unable to bear the yoke of the law. They could not fulfill it. The law is good and right. It's a beautiful expression of God's will for humanity, but due to humanity's sinful hearts, we were never able to keep and obey it on our own. It was not meant to be a means of salvation. It was not meant to be a means of salvation. And this is clear on the pages of the New Testament. In Romans 3.20, Paul writes, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. In Galatians 2.16, he says, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. By works of the law, no one will be justified. Without Christ, the law can only show our failure and our sin to us. Without Christ, without the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us, all the law can do is condemn us and show us that we fail again and again to live in a manner pleasing to God. It shows us our need for a Savior. 
This is what John Calvin explained as the first use of the law. There are three uses of the law, according to John Calvin. The first use is that the law is like a mirror. It's like a mirror that shows us our sin, shows us our failure, shows us our need for a savior. The law is a mirror. However, the Jewish Christians, which came to Antioch and then spoke up at the Jerusalem Council, wanted the Gentiles to follow the law, to be saved. That's why in Acts 15.1, it says that they told people, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. They said it has to be Jesus plus circumcision, and then you're truly saved. This is not just true of this early Christian period. Sadly, it's true of people today. Sometimes people want to add other things on to Jesus as a plus that we have to believe in or do in order to truly be saved. But in Jesus Christ, we are saved by God's gracious gift. We don't earn our restored relationship with him. It is given to us freely and received by trust. I love to watch the world's strongest men competition. Maybe you're familiar with it. It's these incredibly strong men who do these absolutely ridiculous competitions. And one of them is called the super yoke. They put this giant yoke on the guy's backs and they progressively add heavier and heavier weights to this yoke. And then they have to walk 10 meters as fast as they can. And then once enough people do that, they add more weight and it just gets heavier and heavier. Patrick Bubimian, I don't know if I said his name right, he holds the world record of carrying 710 kilograms in this competition. That's 1,500 pounds. It's absolutely ridiculous. He carried it 10 meters in 14 seconds. 10 meters in 14 seconds. Only one other competitor out of a field of close to 20 could even carry the yoke 10 meters. And that other competitor took 28 seconds, double the time. But both of those two men, when they added however much it was, I think it was another 50 kilograms or something like that, when they added more weight to it, neither one of them could even lift that yoke when they added weight. When we try to add to what is required for salvation is if we are putting an impossible weight upon an already impossible burden. Due to our sin and failure, none of us can live the holy life that God rightly demands of us. None of us, no one can live without sin. We need salvation. And once we have salvation through faith and God's grace extended to us by Jesus, we should not then return to that yoke which we already could not carry as if that's the way we're gonna earn our place with God. We don't graduate from God's grace after we first believe. We don't move on to live the Christian life completely by our own power. In what ways are you living as if our salvation is Jesus plus something else? What other plus are you relying on as much as Jesus? Maybe it's Jesus plus good works. Maybe you think that the way that you are upright and good or holy is what earns your continued favor from God. Maybe it's Jesus plus the check boxes of the Christian life, faithful church attendance. I'm there every Sunday, tithing. I've given more than I should to the church, being an elder, a deacon, a renew group leader on the worship team. Jesus plus the right theology in every detail. I know theology better than anybody. Jesus plus looking like a good Christian on the outside, having the best appearance. Jesus plus success or wealth. Jesus plus the right views on politics. Jesus plus activism against the latest societal ills. Jesus plus relational health, a successful marriage, model kids. What are you adding 
to Jesus that is necessary for your salvation. All we need for salvation is faith in Jesus. That's all you need, and you're a beloved, accepted daughter or son of God. Yes, salvation results in good works. There's a fruit that comes forth from it, but it's salvation by faith alone. The reformers were fond of saying we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. We are saved by faith alone, but it produces a result. It overflows into real heart change, life transformation, joyful action, and worship, which is where we come into our final point, that we are now to live free. We are freed from the yoke of sin and the yoke of the law, but are we then just free to live however we please, to just have a party and do whatever we want? No. We see that as James rejoiced at the inclusion of the Gentiles, he also gave them some specific but basic guidelines. In verses 19 to 20 in his speech, he says, therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. He basically gives them three restrictions. Avoid idolatry, avoid sexual immorality, avoid meat that has been strangled or has blood in it. Why these specific guidelines? The first two are very obvious because they're sin. We are not to worship idols because God is the one true only God. And we should worship him alone. Idols are anathema to him. God's people throughout time and place were, a, were to be a witness to the watching world and avoiding idolatry, which was rampant in the ancient world, was one way to do that. As well as the fact that from the very beginning, God said, I'm the only God, worship me alone. Sexual immorality was also rampant in the ancient world amongst Gentiles Living distinctly as God intended and created humans to live, even in the arena of sex, was a way to be a bold witness in a world that treated sex in a very lackadaisical manner. Sex was to be enjoyed in a covenant marital relationship between one man and one woman, and that is why James and the Jerusalem Council told them, avoid sexual immorality, because it was so prevalent, even among the Gentile churches, which is obvious in 1 Corinthians The final guideline is unique and specifically focused on the Jew-Gentile relationship. It was to help two different peoples live together in unity and peace. F.F. Bruce explains that this was a practical way for two peoples from radically different backgrounds to live together. The ancient practice, which had existed from the time of Noah, to not eat meat with blood in it, was a way that Gentile Christians could love their Jewish Christian brothers, as well as animals that were sacrificed to idols were often sacrificed by being strangled. So Paul is telling them, love your Jewish brothers by giving up this meat, which still has blood in it, which is offensive to their customs, the Jewish Christian's customs. Paul addressed this in Romans 14 and 15 and 1 Corinthians 8, where he often encouraged people to joyfully restrict themselves for the sake of others. In 1 Corinthians 8, 13, speaking about food sacrificed to idols, he says, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. James was pointing to the reality, which the rest of the New Testament clearly teaches, we are saved from sin and saved from having to earn our salvation by the yoke of the law, but we are not saved to live in whatever manner we want, in whatever way that pleases ourselves. We are saved to live as God intended us to live, as God originally created us to live, In Galatians 5, Paul, talking about this very concept, says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. 
Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That Bible passage is so important, so let's read it again. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is what John Calvin explained when he said that there were three uses of the law. The law is a mirror to show us our sin. The law is a civil restraint used by governments to keep the majority of humanity from that which is wicked and evil. And finally, the law is a guide, a guide in how we are to live. It's to guide us to good works, which is pleasing to God. The law is a good expression of, God, of how God intended humanity to live. There are certain aspects of the Old Testament law which were specific to Israel's time and place. Pastor Harrison and myself uh, don't no longer wear the robes that the priests of the Old Testament wore, right? We don't. Uh, that was for their time and place. There are other practices that were contained within the Old Testament laws, which we don't do because it was obviously for the time and place of Israel. But a great many of the Old Testament law is universal across time and place. And that's most clearly embodied in the Ten Commandments. God has saved us by grace through Jesus so we should live free from the yoke of both, the sin, of both sin and the law. And we are freed to then live as we were intended in loving service of others. In his book, The Reason for God, Tim Keller explains that in many areas of life, freedom is not so much the absence of restrictions as finding the right ones, the liberating restrictions. I love that quote, so we're, I'm going to read it again. In many areas of life, freedom is not so much the absence of restrictions as finding the right ones, the liberating restrictions. That is so countercultural to our modern American mentality, where freedom means I can do whatever I want. But Keller says, no, the Christian perspective is that freedom is finding the restrictions for which God created us to live in. He uses the example of a fish in water. He goes on to say a fish, because it absorbs oxygen from water rather than air, is only free if it is restricted and limited to water. If we put it out on the grass, its freedom to move and even live is not enhanced, but destroyed. The fish dies if we do not honor the reality of its nature. If you take a fish out of water, it's no longer free, it's dead. In the same manner, we are creatures created by our creator with specific intent, purpose, and restrictions. Sin corrupted and broken, corrupted and broke God's intent and restrictions. Freedom is not a lack of any restrictions, but a return to the intent and restrictions for which God created us. Kent Hughes, a pastor who, who preached on this passage, says, James gives us two complementary principles for grace-filled living here. First, as those under grace, we are not to make non-biblical requirements of others. We're not to make non-biblical requirements of others. And secondly, because we are under grace, we gladly restrict our freedom for the sake of others. No, no non-biblical requirements and gladly restricting our freedoms for others. In what areas are we not living by these complementary grace-filled principles? First, what non-biblical requirements are you making of others? Are you demanding of others? We often want to add non-biblical requirements of others before allowing them to be part of our community or to consider, before we consider them a true Christian. We've touched on a few throughout the sermon. Having people, requiring people to have their life cleaned up 
to be good and respectable, to look a certain way, to believe every single doctrinal issue the same way that we do. We expect them to do certain things, which the Bible doesn't. In our passage, it's circumcision for non-Jewish Gentiles. We often also tell them to not do certain things that aren't necessarily sin. For example, uh, not play cards, not dance, not drink any alcohol at all. God's word is clear that we should not add these non-biblical requirements to others when it relates to their salvation and inclusion in the people of God. That's placing a heavy yoke upon them that they cannot bear up under. Second, are we joyfully restricting our freedoms for the sake of others? Are we joyfully restricting our freedoms for the sake of others? There's so many areas where we need to restrict our freedoms for the sake of our sisters and brothers. Whether it be drinking alcohol around those who come from a background of alcohol abuse, we should joyfully give that up, even though we have the freedom to do that. In some contexts, it could be joyfully uh, singing the type of music that other people prefer or wearing clothes that other people prefer on a Sunday morning. Are we joyfully restricting ourselves for others. Currently, oh, where did I put it? Currently, we are dealing with these. Even in wearing masks for a little while longer, we should be joyfully restricting ourselves for the sake of others. We have an incredibly complex situation every Sunday morning here. We have potentially a hundred, if not more, households in worship, all ages, all types of medical issues, people suffering from cancer, people who are immunocompromised, everything in between, it is probably one of the most complex things our society is trying to get through right now when it comes to the pandemic and responses. We, as a leadership, have chosen that we're going to keep wearing these for two more weeks while we evaluate what happens. Why? Because we love others and want to joyfully restrict ourselves for the sake of those who might not be able to come in here otherwise. In the course of these discussions, one elder told me, Nathan, I would joyfully wear a space suit if it meant that another person could come to worship. Thank God we don't have to wear a space suit, right? My kids would probably love that. I would not. The Bible clearly reminds us that though we are freed from both sin and the law, we are freed to lovingly serve one another. It is, is that our highest ideal? Is that how we evaluate what we're doing in every single area of our lives? Are we saying, is this lovingly serving another person? God's creational intent from the beginning was for humanity to exist in a loving relationship with God and with each other. That's why it's the fullest expression of the law, the two great commandments, love God and love others as yourself. Jesus came to lovingly serve us in order to earn our freedom from sin and law. And he told us in Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you're here this morning and you're feeling burdened today due to your own sin, frustrated that you can't seem to get past this sin that you're struggling with, frustrated and questioning if you have salvation at all, know that in Jesus, there is rest for your soul. He will take that yoke of sin gladly. He has borne it on the cross and died for it in your place already. If instead you're here this morning burdened by a yoke of the law of your own devising or other people's devising, know that in Jesus Christ, you are freed from that as well. 
freed because he has earned your place with him in the, in, next to his heavenly father. You are an adopted son and daughter, and you can joyfully live in loving service of others as a result through the power of the Holy Spirit. Christ came. He's gentle in heart. He came to give us the rest that we can only experience in his salvation. Let's go to him in prayer. Father God, we come to you this morning so incredibly thankful that you took our sins upon yourselves. You bore them in your body on the tree so that we might in turn be righteous in your sight. Thank you so much, Lord God. Thank you that in as a result, we can live free from the yoke of sin, the yoke of the law, that we can live free as you intended us always to live, lovingly serving others, lovingly sacrificing for others. We pray, Lord God, that you might help each one of us to go out here from here, evaluating our lives and exploring ways in which we are not truly believing the gospel and are not trusting in you to be transformed. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Those three, to trust in Jesus. Tis so sweet to trust.